first and foremost, how has Vancouver been doing with COVID, the flu, and other illnesses during the holiday season? We talked about this from a mental aspect yesterday, but let's get into the physical element of it as we speak. Dr. Anna Wolak, family physician and assistant professor at UBC on the line. Anna, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, before we flip the calendar to 2023, and I know that the next 48 hours are going to be very hustle and bustle. There's going to be a lot of shoulder-to-shoulder people enjoying the new year. How did we do, at least through the Christmas season, when it comes to some of the bugs that we've been fighting off? Well, one of the things that I noticed when I looked at the BCCDC reporting data just this morning before um, I came on the show, I saw that actually we saw a peak with influenza just before Christmas when the kids were still at school, but now it seems to have come down. We've seen influenza come down a bit. We've seen RSV is slowly creeping up and COVID, depending on what area of the province you're in, somewhere, some places it's up, some places it's down. The thing that we need to worry about is what is happening um, around the world. But for now, from what we've seen just in our little pocket, it looks like things are edging up, things have peaked. So it's not all full full blast at the moment now, which is the crisis that we were in just before Christmas started, but it requires some watchful watchful waiting. You know, Doctor, you brought up something that I'm going to be asking uh, Pierre Poliev in a few minutes' time when it comes to restrictions and Canada's lack thereof from international travelers and China in particular, because you had mentioned that even though it looks like we've at least got a handle on things here, that the potential always exists for variants to arrive, things to come from the other side of the world or, you know, even south of the border, wherever... How do you feel right now that we're holding up as far as protecting our citizens here in B.C.? So this is the first holiday season where all the public health protections have been dropped. So there is no mask requirements, no vaccine, well, mask requirements, except in healthcare settings, no vaccine requirements, no social distancing requirements, nothing. Um, With regard to what is coming from all over the world for the travel requirements, so the testing requirements, we know that there are some countries that are instituting testing requirements. Part of it is if we institute testing requirements, it doesn't really, for, for certain people coming in from certain parts of the world, it doesn't really make a lot of sense because, well, we know COVID is still around us and it can still come from other parts of the uh, parts of the world so it's it it, and we know like just today the american cdc released that there is a large variant that seems to be homegrown in the northeast united states that is um flooding their population so we can't really predict anymore now in this stage of the pandemic it's less about blocking various people from coming in and having to monitor what we are doing as a population and things that are that make sense and that don't have any economic ramifications such as I mean lockdowns had the economic ramifications so I don't think that's what's going to be coming in anytime soon but certainly things like masks in indoor public spaces you mentioned that people will be shoulder to shoulder in crowds in malls and shopping centers or and making sure that you get vaccinated. Those are things that we can do as a population in like as ourselves to try to protect ourselves from what is brewing all around the world. 
You know, doctor, one fear that I have is when I hear my friends say it, and I'm even guilty of it every once in a while, when I say that, quote, COVID is over. And I say, you know, I know that that's not true, but my life seems to be getting back to normal. And even thinking of going to get, uh, and I don't want to hit this button too hard, but even to go and get my next shot is something that used to be front of mind, and now it's kind of an afterthought. Are we at the point where we can start to look at this in the rearview mirror, or is it something where we should still be doing as much due diligence as we can to try and keep this away and avoid it coming back? I think we need to start looking at it not so much if it's in the rearview mirror. I think we're long past the COVID zero is now a dream. We're never going to be rid of it. What we need to look at now is how we can best live with what is going on, and we need to remember we we need to the science is changing and now what what is coming up are things where we are concerned about the ramifications of getting infected with covid things like long covid things like whether you are more susceptible to other illnesses or not and any strains in the healthcare system so it's it's having not so much looking at it in the rear view window but looking at it as as if this is something else that we are traveling side by side along with and we need to make sure that we don't put ourselves in danger with it right beside us. And so it's not making sure you don't live your life to the extreme on either end um, and taking your own risk assessment and making sure that, that you are very aware of that COVID is not just a, a minor cold or something like that. It's not that. We don't know what's evolving. We don't know what's coming. But you have to be cautious about what, what what's coming but also making sure again that you're not living your life in either extreme where you're just going out and partying and saying nope COVID is over I'm just going to go do whatever I want pre-2019 we're not there we're never going to be back there but at the same time we don't need to be living the way we were in April May June 2020 when everything was locked down and we were ridiculously um, like we we were we were appropriately fearful of, of what was coming. Now we have various tools in place. We have the vaccines, and so we can start opening up a bit and living living differently, but um, trying to live the best life we can, bearing in mind the risks and the science that is behind everything. Wonderful. Thank you for your insight today, Doctor. Thank you for having me. Twenty twenty three hopefully will bring some change. And today we had the chance to hear some clips over the course of the news hour from Pierre Poliev, who says right now that there's many people in Canada who are angry because they are, quote, hurting. And I want to get into some of these conversation pieces with the man himself who is kind enough to join us. Pierre Poliev, good afternoon. Good to be with you. Let's talk about the fact that Canadians are hurting. Why are they hurting? Well, let's start with their financial situation. You know, we've had the 40-year highs in inflation, interest rates now rising faster than any time since I've been born. We have 1.5 million people forced to eat at food bank in a single month in March. One food bank said that they're getting visits from people who are seeking out medical assistance and dying from the food bank, not because the people are sick, or injured, but because they can't afford to live. We have news reports of students living in homeless shelters because they can't afford housing. And who can afford housing these days? Right now, it takes a larger share of the average paycheck 
to make mortgage payments on the average house than at any time in recorded history. This is life in Canada after seven years of Justin Trudeau. The cost of government is driving up the cost of living. A half trillion dollars of inflationary deficits have driven up the cost of the goods we buy and the interest that we pay. Uh, the more he spends, the more things cost. Uh, regulatory red tape prevents us from building affordable housing and uh, developing new projects that could give people bigger paychecks and affordable homes. Um, and Trudeau has done nothing to fix any of these problems. So I believe it's time to cap government spending, uh, cut government waste to bring down the inflation, um, get rid of the, the carbon tax to lower gas and grocery bills, and remove the government red tape so that we can build affordable houses for our young people and more develop our resources to give bigger paychecks and more affordable goods to our consumers. In other words, let's turn all this hurt into hope. Mr. Polyev, you mentioned the Bank of Canada, and we talk about the fact that at points you said they were, quote, printing money. And my challenge is trying to see how 2023 will be different from 2022. Uh, without using the phrase stopping the bleeding too often, how do we stop the bleeding? We have to stop the overspending by government. Now, even the governor of the Bank of Canada has now admitted that excessive government deficits are driving up both inflation and interest rates. And it's pretty easy to understand why. Governments uh, you know, running a $36 billion deficit, those dollars are outbidding up goods and interest. They're competing with uh, Canadians for credit, which drives up interest rates. So we have to cap government spending. I'm not saying cut, but let's. why don't we bring in a law that says every time the government brings in a new dollar of spending, they should find a dollar of savings to pay for it rather than just borrowing and taxing more. That's how every households discipline their spending. Why doesn't government do the same? Let's um, cancel Trudeau's plan to triple the carbon tax uh, because we can't afford higher energy prices right now. And finally, let's remove the government red tape so that our farmers can produce more food, our builders can produce more homes, and our workers can generate more affordable energy for Canadians. You mentioned in your press conference today that you were open to conversing about travel and the woes right now that many Canadians are facing south of the border. Obviously, it's a, a black eye, a gray cloud over our industry right now. What changes need to be made and who needs to be accountable? Well, first of all, the government of Canada needs to be accountable. Remember, air transportation is federal responsibility. The federal government controls our airports and regulates our airlines. This is squarely on Justin Trudeau's table. He's the one who should take immediate action to hold the airlines accountable for their poor service. He's the one that should be holding our airports accountable for their poor management. We, you know, the Toronto International Airport was found to be the worst uh, airport in the world last year. Uh, this, this, sorry, this year, assuming it would be last year. And um, we have, that was in the summer. Remember, we were told, oh, it's just a temporary glitch once we get everybody back to post-COVID normality, we won't have these problems anymore. Well, now look at the chaos. Uh, with thousands of people forced to sleep on airport uh, concrete floors waiting for their planes that are delayed, some people are going to be stuck down south for weeks longer than expected. Um, my solution is let's streamline the, uh, the, the Canadian Transportation Agency's complaint process that they can immediately uh, investigate and rule on the 30,000 outstanding complaints and um, issue penalties to airlines that have violated our passenger uh, protection laws. 
Uh, let's hold them accountable for breaking the rules and for failing to deliver for Canadians, and let's get our airports functioning at world-class standards like they used to before Trudeau. Mr. Poliev, you also said in your press conference today uh, that you were closely monitoring the situation in China. You used the phrase that the numbers of COVID cases in China were, quote, exploding, and yet what Canadians are doing right now is monitoring the situation. Do you find that we're being a little too reactive as opposed to perhaps being proactive? Well, we are. We have to watch carefully. Um, we, we want to make sure that we protect the Canadian public. Uh, we also want to make sure that we move forward. Um, and uh, that means that uh, we you know, act when, when the numbers and the, the data warrants. And uh, at the same time, uh, you know, let's, let's ensure that whatever policy we bring in place protects the public and delivers more benefit than cost to our people. We see that the numbers are high. The data states that. But at the same time right now, with the potential for new variants to come into the country, we're kind of just hovering around this conversation. I'm just wondering what we tell Canadians to make sure that they feel comfortable when they see flights coming in from overseas that they're protected. Well, that's exactly what our what CBSA and uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada are responsible for doing. So uh, I think we should uh, they should be monitoring carefully to make sure there are new, new variants entering Canada from which we are unprotected. Uh, and uh, we should put the medical safety of our population first and foremost. Um, and uh, that's what conservatives are going to be calling for in the days ahead. I want to finish up with gun control and crime. It's also something that I know that you've spoken of frequently. This is obviously near and dear to many Canadians' hearts. What are we going to do with crime, or what would you do with crime if put in power? Well, I think we have to go after the real bad guys. Um, A very small minority of repeat violent offenders are responsible for the vast majority of crime. Let me give you an interesting fact point from your own province. The BC Union of Mayors wrote a letter which they said that in Vancouver, there are 40 offenders, 40, who are responsible for 6,000 negative interactions with police. And negative interactions is mostly arrests. 40, 6,000. That means that each one of them is on average responsible for 150 interactions with police in a year. That's like one arrest every two days for the same people. Now imagine if we brought in real penalties uh, to take those 40 people off the streets, 6,000 fewer police interactions would be required. And each time those were interactions, they sound like, you know, sterile, something, uh, you know, technical. We're talking about having to arrest people because they attacked a stranger, robbed a bank, carjacked a vehicle, um, stabbed an innocent person, um, destroyed people's lives. Uh, and we, we, you know, we saw that again with the killing of an Ontario police force um, constable just the other day. Uh, the alleged killer was out on bail, even though he has previous convictions for violent gun-related and police attacks. And finally, he was Uh, He'd been charged once again with those same kinds of offenses. He should not have been out on bail. Had he not, then that constable might still be with us today. So let's bring in tougher penalties for the most serious habitual offenders instead of doing as Trudeau does, which is to try and scare people about hunters and anglers. It's not the hunter up in uh, Kitimat um, who is, um, or Prince George, who is shooting up the streets of, of Vancouver 
it's the repeat violent offenders. So leave the hunters alone. Go after the real bad guys. Mr. Polyev, I thank you, and I wish you a good New Year to you and your entire family. Excellent. Great to be with you. Happy New Year to all your listeners. Rob Fagan for Jazz till about 6 this evening. Mental health this time of year is always at the forefront, wondering how people are getting through the holidays. You know, we always size things up, and we're always trying to figure things out for next year so that we can make improvements. But there is a question out there right now that I think does need an answer, and I think we have the momentum. It's just a matter of can we get over the hurdle. Why should BC have a public mental health system? Dr. Erica Penner Director of Advocacy for the BC Psychological Association, kind enough to join me. Doctor, good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I- I'm well. So let's just answer that question right out of the gates. Why should BC have a public mental health system? Yeah, I mean, I think there are so many good reasons. It's even hard to count them. I mean, there's the obvious you know, quality of life, human aspect that we all dese- you know, deserve and-, and should have access to the very best quality of care, not just physical health care, but mental health care, knowing what an impact it has on every aspect of, aspect of our life, including our physical health. But I mean, we can also point to numbers. We can, we can look at how it improves, uh, you know, the, in terms of our, our economy and savings there, in terms of um, the cost to our uh, health care system itself. There's so many good reasons why we should be providing this kind of, kind of care to folks. I'm not sure if everybody knows this, but right now, mental health support is only available privately or through work plans, and that leaves uh, a certain portion of our society vulnerable. I think that's a problem on its own. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've worked in private practice for many years, and and I know that the slice of folks that can access me is so small compared to those who actually need help. And I think that's a big reason why our organization has been pushing for psychologists to be part of the primary care system, just knowing that that's where people go. I mean, I think for all of us, when we're feeling depressed or anxious or, or when we have pain or, or can't sleep, you know, we go to our family doctor, and really that's where we need to be catching people. So I would imagine family doctor, I know mine is full and it's tough to get in. I know my dentist is full, it's tough to get in. Would it be fair to say that some psychologists are full as well and that they're, we're at the point where we're looking at wait lists as well? I mean, anecdotally, for sure. I think we see that in the private practice world. But at the same time, you know, we recently surveyed all of the psychologists in BC, and over 200 said that, you know, kind of effective immediately, they would be willing to put at least minimum one day a week of their time into primary care office work. So I think what we see is that, yes, people are full and they're busy, and, and so are GPs. But there's still that real commitment to provide better public-funded services. Because as someone in public practice, you know, I do see this really small slice of the population. And while those folks deserve treatment just as much as anyone else, that's not really why we got into psychology in the first place. I mean, the, the point is to help everyone who needs it. I always think that when the media focuses on mental health, we immediately all dry our attention because of the spectacle to the downtown east side of Vancouver. But the reality is, is we're looking at smaller populations, you know, for instance, on the island, we're looking in the interior, we're looking up north. I mean, this is truly a provincial challenge. Absolutely. I mean, we all have a state of physical health every day, and we all have a state of mental health every day. And to pretend as though, um, you know, that, that any of us are immune, I mean, I, I wish, right? But the reality is at least 50% of us will have a mental health condition by the time that we're 40. And realistically, that's probably an underestimate, right? We still know that stigma really affects 
the degree to which people will report on mental health symptoms, another great reason to have mental and behavioral health part of our primary care system, right? It just normalizes it. Nobody feels bad or silly to say, oh, I've got to go see my doctor today. And if you're a psychologist, it's just part of the team there that really sends the message that it's okay. Like, it's okay to have a mental health concern. And in fact, we all probably will at some point or other. Do you feel like, uh, Dr. Erica Penner joining us here on CKNW, doctor, do you feel like we as a society have a pre, uh, finally allowed that to be a part of the normal conversation, like I'm having mental challenges, and perhaps it is just the structure, for instance, in British Columbia that needs to catch up? You know what? I mean, there's a lot of surveys on this in Canada as well, and absolutely we're doing better than we used to, and people will still name cost. Uh, you know, accessibility as one of the main reasons that they don't seek mental health services. But stigma is still huge. Like, let's not pretend otherwise. It's still really hard to say that you need mental health support. It's still looked down upon. You know, I, I think it would be a lot easier to say that you sprained your ankle than it would be to say that you're suffering from depression and that's why you can't come into work today. So we have a long ways to go in that regard. What progress have we seen over the last couple of years? I'll I'll ask you that as my last question. I mean, you've probably been at this for a while. What are some of the things you've seen maybe just even through the pandemic where you're like, you know what, as as daunting as this task is, there is light at the end of the tunnel? Well, I think what I see is that our government is trying to make changes. Like we've seen the changes to the the payment of, of family doctors, which is great, recognizing the important work that they're doing. But I also see that our Ministry of Health and Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, you know, they're they're having conversations about publicly funded mental health. They're they're seeing the importance of it. I do think you're kind of saying like, how do we get over this last hump? And I think we're still on the other side of it. I don't think we've gotten over it yet because we we just haven't quite put our money where our mouth is yet. But we actually have a proposal into the government now for about 13 months saying, like, let's get psychologists into primary care. And we're really looking forward to hearing back from them about that. Well, let's hope that you get that answer in 2023. Doctor, thank you for your time this afternoon. My pleasure. Uh, One of the things that I want you to have when you go out for New Year's Eve is the basics when it comes to safety. See, great segue. Uh, For that, we go to Tanya Vissenden, Constable and Media Relations Officer for the Vancouver Police Department. Constable, how are you tonight? I'm good, Rob. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Let's talk about safety. Obviously, this is going to be a really big New Year here around the Lower Mainland for the simple fact that it's the first time that it is, quote-unquote, all systems go, which means for you guys, it's probably going to be um, business as usual, but at the same time, heads on a swivel. What do you guys have planned for the downtown core, and how can we stay safe? Yeah, so it will be a busy night for us, for sure, as this is the first New Year since um, restrictions have loosened post-pandemic-ish, I guess I should say. Um, so we do expect to see a lot of people coming into the city from uh, surrounding areas, other parts of the lower mainland. And we just want to help people stay safe and have a safe night. So we will have extra officers deployed throughout the city, um, including um, the high traffic areas like the Granville Street Entertainment District, Yale Town, Gastown. And that's often where there are more restaurants, more bars. So we'll have our extra officers there. Also, our gang crime unit will be out, and they'll be monitoring the bars and nightclubs. And our traffic teams will also be up, and they'll be setting up their counterattacks throughout the city. Uh, Might we talk about transit? I think a lot of people are going to be trying to get to that downtown core. They're not going to risk driving, so they're going to want to get on the SkyTrain or the buses. Uh, Will there be an increase in presence there as well? 
So that's something our partners at Transit Police will will definitely be at. So, yeah, I don't want to speak for them, but I know our partners there uh, will be in full force as well. What are some of the things, I I was just talking to my daughter about this the other day, you know, things like covering your drinks and and just being aware and alert in these moments. I mean, I know that that's kind of a regular thing that you should do any weekend that you're going downtown, but with such large numbers, such masses, um, are there any tips that you can give our listeners to just make sure that they can be extra safe? So I think first and foremost, we want everyone to plan a safe ride home. Um, by all means, go out, have fun, enjoy time with your family and friends, um, but have a safe way to get home, whether that be rideshare, designated driver, or taxi. And if you do need us, if something does uh, arise, we have plenty of officers out, flag one of us down, or just call us. Is that a misconception that sometimes it's tough to approach an officer when in actuality that's what you're there for? You're there to make sure that there's a conduit between, you know, a a patron in trouble? Is that something that you guys find is not often thought of as as an option, but it's actually there? Yeah, we definitely want people to call us, and that's that's why we're going to be out. We're, all offices are going to be out on foot in all the high-traffic areas where all the bars and restaurants are throughout the city. So we have plenty of officers out. Uh, even come up to us and just say hi if that's all you want to do. We're, we're there. We're, we're happy to help. And when you talk about this being the first time from a patron in the last couple of years, you'll have a handful of new officers where they're going to get their first New Year's Eve experience as well. Is that not true? Yeah, oh, definitely. Every We're, we're always hiring, and uh, every year we have more officers. So, yeah, there'll be plenty of uh, new and uh, officers out, and, and just uh, basically there'll be a bunch of officers out to help to make sure everyone stays safe. I love it. I, I just, um, I've got an uncle who was in the VPD for so many years, and he was a part of the Granville Mall, and I just, I, I love when he would talk about the new guys, and the eyes would be wide, and, you know, it was a spectacle, but I, I just want everybody to be safe, have fun. So uh, I appreciate you coming on, and even just a couple of tips, just kind of put in the back pocket for tomorrow is a big deal. So thank you for your time today. No worries, Rob. Thank you. Happy New Year. I hope they've got the right spirits in tow because this segment is for all of you that are looking for the best wine or maybe a little hidden gem as you're getting ready. You know, we all rush to the liquor store. We're trying to find that bottle that we could take to the friend's house or maybe just enjoy on our own couch. But for this, we wanted to go to the experts. Michaela Morris, international wine writer and educator for Decanter Magazine and Quench Magazine, kind enough to join us. Michaela, Happy New Year. How are you? Happy New Year. Thank you. I'm fantastic. Well, this is something that is near and dear to my heart. My wife and I love partaking in a good bottle of wine, be it bubbly or just something that's uh, off the beaten path. So why don't we start with good value? Because that is always something that we're looking for. Is there anything out there this season that is um, great to taste, great to enjoy and might keep a couple bucks in my pocket? Absolutely. My go-to whenever I'm looking for something affordable um, and still very delicious is Cava. Uh, So Cava is Spain's denomination for quality traditional method sparkling wine. So we are definitely talking about bubbles here. And right now, the uh, Cotonou Classico Brut Cava is only $14.49 at BC liquor stores. Uh, After December 31st, they'll go back to its regular but still very affordable price of uh, $17. Um, so it's it's um, it's a fantastic sparkling wine to open for large parties or, as you say, if you just want to uh, uh, save a couple of bucks. 
So it's made from Spain's um, traditional uh, or native grape varieties like Macabeo, Charello, Parallada, not necessarily grapes that people have heard of. But no matter, it's super zesty with lots of citrus, a bit of pear, and this very characteristic hint of mocha. Um, nice, soft bubbles, but still very, uh, very vibrant. Mm, sounds really good. You had me, you had me at pear, and you also had me at the price yeah. point. So between the two of them, that uh, sounds like it's going to be great. And you know, even though I might not be able to pick it up at the fourteen fifty price point, I think seventeen dollars is something that a lot of us could deal with. Um, you mentioned cava, but let's talk a little bit about champagne. If we're willing to open up the coffers just a little bit, is there something out there that you might recommend on that front? Yeah, totally. There's lots of very famous champagne houses. People often have their favorites, like Veuve Clicquot or Maud and Chandon. They make in the tens of millions of bottles every year. So when I have an opportunity to recommend a, a champagne, I like to focus on some of the smaller champagne houses, and in particular, a, um, a category that's called grower champagne. So these are champagne houses that make their champagne exclusively from grapes that they grow. Um, so today I'm recommending the uh, Pierre Payard. It's a perennial favorite of mine. Uh, the cuvee is car- called Les Parcelles, and it comes from the Grand Cru village of Bouzy. Now, I can't think of a more right. appropriately named village than Bouzy. <laughs> yeah. um, it sells for 81 which is a little bit, $81 at BC Liquor Stores. It, that's a little bit more than the starting point for Champagne, which is 50 But honestly, if one of these larger houses could get their hands on um, Pierre Pirates grapes, they would probably sell their cham- that champagne for in the hundreds. So still offering great value for money and only about 100,000 bottles made a year. It's um, a blend of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So it's rich, um, it's still racy and structured. It's very dry and it has beautiful aromas of um, uh, freshly baked strawberry scone and flavors of lemon zest. Super persistent bubbles as well. It's definitely uh, a champagne uh, that you can contemplate uh, if you're thinking over your New Year's Mm -hmm. resolution. Well, just shy of Penticton, there are a number of great wineries off of Highway 97. And one of them that caught my eye this particular year is, I think, one that you might want to talk about from our local vineyards. Blue Mountain had a really good couple of years and uh, did so through the pandemic and fought the good fight. And they've got something that is uh, at a good price point that I think you wanted to shine some light on. Absolutely. For me, I love supporting local. And that's so easy when it comes to BC's traditional method sparklers. Um, it's one of the categories that we that we truly excel in. And Blue Mountain was one of the first to prove that. They make consistently great sparkling wine. Um, you'll have to go to a private wine store uh, to, to pick it up. If anywhere from 30 to $35 is the retail price. But I still think it offers really great value. Just like the champagne that I recommended, it's a blend of um, uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. It's very lemony, nice crisp. Apple, I just think of our Okanagan apples, um, maybe a hint of, of red currant and a very subtle toast and, and, and biscuity note, nice, nice and creamy as well, but definitely a good one if you want to support local. And very quickly, I mentioned just before we went to break that I've kind of delved into the non-alcoholic spirits mm-hmm. as well, and uh, there's a few out there that are pretty darn good, no? Yes, absolutely. There's much better technology to de-alcoholize the wine as well. Companies are using a, a better quality base wine. So if you go to the Drive Canteen on Commercial Drive, they have an excellent selection of um, non-alcoholic beverages. 
And you can pick up a bottle of the Naughty Sparkling Chardonnay for $25. It's made from organic grapes. It's vegan friendly. It comes from um, grapes that are grown in, in Spain, in fact. Um, lots of apple, lots of peach, and this upfront frothiness, super cheerful, um, so that you can toast uh, your friends who might actually be drinking um, wine with alcohol in it. Um, really, really good, uh, good for the price as well. Well, wonderful. I'm going to tweet all of your recommendations to the viewers and the listeners, and thank you for this. It's a wonderful insight just ahead of New Year. So thank you for your time, and thank you for your uh, your hints your little tidbits thank you so much for having me and happy new year now streaming okay what's going on what's trending streaming with steven you know what i've been hanging out with steven all week long and i knew this segment was coming so i didn't want to ask him about movies because i want to be <laughs> just as surprised as you are when he brings you the good the bad and the ugly steven good afternoon once again wow rob hello thanks for that lovely intro you gave me that's why i'm here i didn't make the technical one i'm just here to wax poetically about what a great man you are and your your critically acclaimed movies that you've got are going to make sure that everybody enjoys flipping the calendar and will be better for it so let's get to it what are we talking well you know what let's uh, start it off with one of the best movies of the year from uh, according to a lot of critics so this is glass onion a knives out mystery so have you seen knives out back in 2019 rob i did not oh no it's a really good movie so it's from the director uh, ryan johnson who infamously did the last jedi we're not going to get into that uh but he did a whodunit mystery uh with knives out back in 2019 with a large ensemble cast of like very well-known actors and he's back at it again with uh detective benoit blanc played by 007 himself daniel craig in a brand new mystery here's the trailer for it you expected the mystery you expected a puzzle but for one person on this island, this is not a game. Will you explain it to us then, detective? Lock the doors. Stay in your rooms. Everyone is in danger. Oh, it was kind of caught your attention there, huh, Rob? Yeah, a little bougie for me. I like that. <laughs> yeah, well, like I said earlier, it's a huge ensemble cast, and he's back at it again this time. But this time, it's a new cast. Uh, aside from Daniel Craig, who was in the first movie, we've got a brand new group of people here. Edward Norton is in it. He's playing the tech billionaire who invites all of the guests in this private island. That kind of kicks off the story. I uh, got singer and actor Janelle Monet. Catherine Hahn from WandaVision, uh, as we both know, Dave Batista, former WWE champion, and Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy is also in this movie. And uh, a bunch of others like Kate Hudson, Leslie Odom Jr. from Hamilton, Jessica Henrik from Matrix Resurrections. So it's a huge cast we've got here, and they're all coming together for, uh, I guess, a live-action version of the board game Clue. So it got a lot of great reviews from critics. Hmm. People loved this movie, and it was actually released for one week in theaters and made a whole bunch of money. So it was the widest theatrical release ever for a Netflix film in cinemas. So it's highly recommended Glass for Netflix too. Glass Onion. Glass Onion. And it, huh. it's actually out now on Netflix. It came out on December 23rd. 
I may have to partake in this now that I've gotten through the uh, Meghan and Harry documentary. Oh, my God. <laughs> you survived through that. Amazing. <laughs> I thought it was fantastic. I, I know I'm in the minority, but uh, it's all good. Okay. Onward and upwards. Is there anything on the horizon? Yeah. So still on Netflix, uh, there's a show coming up uh, on the New Year. So on New Year's Day, we've got Kaleidoscope. So this one is uh, focusing on a group of thieves uh, who is led by Giancarlo Esposito from Breaking Bad, uh, Gus Fring. And he's also in The, Mandal- uh, the Mandalorian as Moff Gideon, uh, he and this group of thieves plan to rob a $7 billion vault and pull off the perfect heist. So in order to do that, they have to navigate through differences within their own team and external threats such as, of course, the FBI. Here's a trailer for that. This is the most secure vault in the United States, maybe in the world. So what's the score? $7 billion, give or take. What's the split? Even Stephen across the board. You say there's biometrics, uninterruptible power supplies. And security teams who are ready to use deadly force. She basically robs herself. I apologize for the sound effects in that trailer there. That might have caught some people off guard. I will say I have never listened to a movie trailer simply through audio before. This is a new experience for me. Oh, theater of the mind, Rob, theater of the mind. (laughs) So the cool thing about this show is uh, it spans through 25 years with parts of it set before, during, and after the heist. But what's most captivating about this show, Rob, is that the unique part about it, you can watch any of the episodes in any order. There's no linear uh, progression in the story. So leading up to the finale, you can just watch any episode however you want it. Both Talia and I were thinking the same thing. We were both thinking it's got a little Ocean's Eleven to it. Oh, yeah, it kind of does. It kind of does. You know what? That's a very good point there. Probably more violence than Ocean's Eleven, but hey. That's okay. I could do with that. All right, one more. Let's squeeze in. Let's shoehorn one more. What do you got? All right, one more. So we're going to switch over to Disney Plus here for people who have that and not Netflix or both. Uh, so The Menu, this actually came out recently in theaters, and this one's a really good movie from what I've heard as well. Uh, it's, it's a dark comedy thriller, and it follows a couple played by uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, who is the lead in The Queen's Gambit, and Nicholas Holt from The Great Tolkien and uh, X, the X-Men movies. Uh along with an ensemble of one percenters, a bunch of elitists who traveled to an elite remote coastal island to dine at an exclusive restaurant and try this super fancy expensive menu uh, made by a chef, a mysterious chef who is played by Ralph Fiennes, uh, who is best known as Lord Voldemort in the Harry Potter film series. So it's a bunch of rich people on an island trying out fancy food, but as it progresses, there's a mystery that begins to unravel behind it. So we're coming back to that murder mystery kind of vibe. And uh, it's it turns the dining experience into uh, quite the nightmare, actually, for these guests. Here's a sneak peek. Welcome to Hawthorne. Here we are family. We harvest, we ferment, we gel. The game is trying to guess what the overarching theme of the entire meal is going to be. You won't know till the end. This menu, this guest list, this entire evening. Jesus Christ. This is just theater. It's stagecraft. We're leaving now. Has been painstakingly planned. This is what you're paying for. It's okay. No, we're going to die today. Yes, we are. Yeah. So, Rob, this is a satirical over-the-top take on gourmet food. Uh the fine dining experience and the foodie culture. So uh, it's out on uh, January 4th on Disney Plus and streaming. I love it. Stephen Chang, 
You're a good man. Thank you for doing this for us. You're a good man too, Rob. Thank you very much. <laughs> right. I love those positive words of affirmation.